Turn with me in your NIV Bibles or find your bulletin insert with our passage of Scripture printed upon it, found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, the fourth chapter, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. That's Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, our graduates may not realize it today, but this is a somewhat difficult time for most parents and even grandparents to that extent whenever their children graduate high school because passing through that particular threshold means in some ways you are finally moving out in some way, form or fashion, into life on your own. I mean, you may not have a job yet. You may be going to further education, but it's never really the same in some ways after you graduate high school. And it's hard on your parents because their entire lives, since you were born, they've watched over you. Uh, they've protected you. I want all of us to think about our own lives and what our parents did for us. If your parents were like mine, they were standing right there beside me when I was small and climbing the rungs of that ladder to slide down that sliding board. They were right there running alongside the bicycle to make sure I didn't fall over the first time I was trying to learn how to ride and stay up. They may have taken you to middle school to help you get a feel for that huge place and you probably thought I'll never learn my way around all of these buildings, not to mention the fact my locker doesn't work properly. If they were patient enough, they taught you to drive made sure that you knew to wear seat belts, not text and drive at the same time, not, not many friends in the car at once, and all the other things I'm sure they probably told you. And this has gone on for so long that at times, let's be honest, we can be honest in church, can't we? You feel smothered. I mean, after all, you get tired of, of being looked after. And that's why it feels so good today. It's not only the thought of this accomplishment, 
you know, this, this desire that is fulfilled, that's sweet to the soul, but you'll also finally be away from your parents, either at work or in school. And that feeling of relief from being looked after and constantly corrected is similar, believe it or not, to what Paul's talking about right here in Galatians 4. When he says, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, or that we might receive adoption as sons, as many translations have it. Now, Galatians is not the easiest letter of Paul's to understand. And his main point in the passage right before ours, right there near the end of chapter 3, is that the Galatians are sons of God and heirs by faith in Jesus Christ. He's been emphasizing this faith that makes all the difference in the world. And that thesis is now illustrated in our passage through an analogy. And he begins to apply what he's been teaching them. And Paul says, and and, and until Paul says here in verse 1, what I am saying is, we may not have been able to follow his logic. But now it starts to become clearer. He's simply stating that in former days, God's people were under the law. The law is sort of like that parent that constantly looks after you, that corrects you, sometimes it seems like, all of the time. That's why Paul says that we are at one time we were children. He's not speaking age so much as he's making the point that it was a different era. They were under the law. They were in an inferior position to what they are now. They were slaves. But now they're sons. And what has made such a difference? Paul tells us it's the coming of Jesus Christ. Right there in verse 4, when the time had fully come, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. This Son was born under the law. Why? So that He could redeem those under the law. So that He could buy them out of bondage to the law by enduring and exhausting in Himself the curse of of the law. Jesus was willing to suffer all of this humiliation, all of this pain, all of this suffering and agony, even death on the cross so that we might be given the gift of adoption. The full rights of sons and ladies Don't misunderstand Paul here when he keeps using this word sons over and over again. He's talking about you as well. He's not using a sexist term. He's making an extremely important point and that point can basically be made only by this word. Remember, it's Paul's day and time. Women didn't stand in the line of inheritance at all. His whole point is he's talking about the inheritance that we have. If we're sons, then we're heirs. And that's why he uses that word sons over And over again, he's talking about a relationship, a special relationship with God that leads to a wonderful inheritance, which is eternal life with him. 
this metaphor that he's using, of course, comes from what we see in the Greek and Roman legal worlds, which allowed a wealthy, childless man, if he so desired, to, to adopt a young child, maybe even a slave. And you see, that slave would become a son with the full rights of inheritance. In our day and time, the adoption of a child mimics that which Paul describes in this passage. Russell Moore is the senior vice president and dean of the School of Theology of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he has a book on adoption. And he had an article in Christianity Today last year in which he wrote that the creepiest sound that he ever heard was nothing at all. And I'm going to quote from his article here for a few moments. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench. The horror was the quiet of it all. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. But he goes on to say these children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children. So they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Sergey smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim stood straight at attention, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they didn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way in which we'd entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral because we had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the hallway and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew that maybe for the first time he would be heard on some primal level. He knew he had a father and a mother now. And I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard that yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba Cry passages in the New Testament. Passages I had memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. This is one of those Abba cry passages in front of us today. 
And I think very often we don't get it either. This is why Jesus came into the world. Oh, sure, it was for our forgiveness of sins. It was for our salvation. But that gift of salvation means that we have been adopted into God's family. We become His children. We are His sons and daughters and thus heirs of His wonderful legacy and fortune, meaning eternal life with Him. John in Revelation 22 even says, we'll reign with Him. Just as these young parents in this article, went through all sorts of trouble, all kinds of applications and visits, all of this pain and suffering to make sure those two little boys would have love and a better life, so has God gone through exponentially more trouble for you and me, more pain and suffering, more cost, that we might have love and a better life. And in this sense, adoption is the positive aspect of redemption. It's the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. It's why Jesus Christ came into this world in the first place. You know, we only find this word adoption here and in Romans 8 in the whole New Testament. And both times it's speaking to the privileges of sonship, that we have love, peace, protection, security, and an inheritance, all of that and more. Indeed, we even have a family. We have the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ all over the world, regardless of where we go in life. And that's important. That's important for you young people especially. Because some of you, I don't know all of your plans, but you may be leaving for college you may be taking a job. But you may not ever live in Rock Hill again. I know your parents don't want to hear that. But you know, I graduated from college in 1979. I've never lived in Statesville since. And that may happen to you. You may go to college. You may graduate and find a job in Columbia or Charleston or Atlanta, or someplace in Florida, or who knows, across the pond. It's hard to say. And you may think, I'm away from my family, but you still have a family. You have a greater family than you can ever imagine in the body of Jesus Christ. That's one of the joys of adoption that we don't always notice or think about. Just this past week, my daughter Rachel started an internship with the city of Greenville's professional baseball team, which is known as the Greenville Drive. They're part of the Boston Red Sox organization. And she moves to Greenville, where she's living with a family that she didn't even know two weeks ago and really knows very few people in that town at all and what happens the first game that she works. She just happens to bump into, you know, there are no coincidences in the Christian life. She just happens to bump into an elder from this church, Joe Patrick. You know, Joe is 
preparing to move his own family to Greenville because he's taken a new job and Joe gives Rachel a big hug and gives her his cell phone number and says, Rachel, if you need anything at all, you just call me. You call me if you need anything at all. And when Rachel called me later that night to tell me about that meeting, I said, well, honey, do you see what a wonderful gift God gave to you? He showed you that there's family wherever you go. Somebody there to love you. Somebody there to give you a hug. Somebody there to say, if you need anything, anything at all. And that's true for you as you go out into your life, just as it's true for all of us. You see, it's always a small world where God's concerned. We many times think it's a big world, but we find out it's a small world where God's concerned. Rachel had a friend in a strange place, and Joe had the same. And this gift of family points us toward another gift that we see in this passage. And the gift to which I'm referring is the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit. And it's really a twofold gift in the sense that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of assurance, both right there in one. This is how we are assured. This is how we know we are sons of the living God. The Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, moves us to approach God as a child would approach a father. And it's not the longing to approach God as father, a witness to our yearning. To those of us made in God's image in which we, as Augustine put it, have no rest until we rest in Him. You see, this isn't some small work of God. It takes the whole trinity. We see it right there in verse 6. Did you pick up on it? God, God the Father, sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of His Son, His Son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God's work and our hearts through His Holy Spirit shows us we have been adopted into His family. We have been saved by His grace. The Holy Spirit empowers us each day, helps us to see our need to call on God as our Father, and keeps us looking not only to our brothers and sisters for encouragement and help that we need each and every day, but ultimately keeps us looking to God Himself. You know, He's the one to whom we run. He's the one who's promised He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's the one in whom we confide. He's the one to whom Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Abba, our Father. About the time I graduated high school in 1975, there was a song by James Taylor that played on the radio all the time. It wasn't a song that he originally recorded. Marvin Gaye recorded back in the 60s. It was called How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. You probably heard that song. 
You know, the second stanza of that song begins like this. I close my eyes at night, wondering where would I be without you in my life. I think that's something that every Christian needs to think about from time to time. We need to think about as we go to sleep at night, where would we be without God in our lives? I mean, really. I run into people all the time at funeral homes who tell me, they always say the same thing, how do people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, how do they make it through a time like this? Where would we be without God in our lives? It's not a very heartening answer, at least from Paul in Ephesians 2. For he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's you and me, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, could the news be any worse? Let's recap that. We're separated, alienated, strangers. We have no hope and we're without God in the world. That's where we'd be without the grace of Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to say in that passage, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the same good news we have right here in Galatians 4. Yes, we once were far off. We were slaves. We had no stake in the inheritance. But God has brought us near in Jesus Christ through His work and His shed blood on the cross. And now we're sons. And not even sons, but heirs. As Peter puts it in his first letter, he says, we have an inheritance. It's a verse that I use in funerals a lot. A verse that begins by saying, by the mercy of God, you've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And most of the time we put so much emphasis on the first part of the verse, the living hope, and that's a great thing to know that you and I all of our days have a hope that is alive and well in Jesus Christ because He reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that's great good news. We forget the last part of the verse. And an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now you're going to soon have your high school diploma. I don't think you have them yet, do you? No. And you know, as they say, no one can ever take that away from you. You have an education and it can't be taken away and that's a good thing. But you have something even better. You have an inheritance kept in heaven for you, one that's imperishable, one that's undefiled, one that's unfading. And that's why I titled the sermon, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by God, that we have the rights of adoption as His children, both now and forevermore. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, what a wonderful thing it is to think about how we were all orphans in your creation without someone to respond to our calls for comfort, for hope, for love, for someone to recognize us. until you, out of your grace and mercy, poured your love out upon us through the power of your Holy Spirit who worked in our hearts to cause us to see our need for your saving grace in Jesus Christ. And your Holy Spirit helped us to pray, Dear Father, And we thank you for that. And we thank you that we've gone from being slaves to children. Children who can approach our Father about anything. Children who have a Father who always loves, who's always faithful, who never breaks a promise. who's always there when we want to talk, always has time, and always has our good in mind, and takes the time and effort it takes to discipline us, to make sure that we stay on the path that He set for us. We thank you, dear Father, for this passage and for the wonderful way through this word of adoption that it reminds us that we are your children and loved by you. And we thank you for these high school graduates today. We're thankful for their hard work. We're thankful for the witness that they have been in this place and continue to be. And we're thankful for all of those things that you will call them to do in the days to come for the sake of your kingdom and that of their Lord Jesus. We pray your blessings upon them. We pray that you'll continue to give them wisdom and guidance, that you'll help them in their spiritual lives to grow closer to you and we pray that they'll always see and know of the gift of family your family wherever you call them in the days to come dear father we're thankful for this Christian family here in this church and for all those who take seriously the vow that they make whenever a baby is baptized in the life of this church, 
We're thankful for those who have been youth group leaders and have taught Sunday school, kept them in the nursery when they were small, those who have reached out to them in so many different ways. And we thank you for the opportunities that we have as your people to continue to train the next generation and to make sure that young men and women leave this place of worship in a way in which they rightly handle your word of truth and in a way in which others will see their good works and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. We pray your blessing upon their lives to that end as well. And we would pray for ourselves also that our lives might do that for you as well. And we thank you too, dear Father, for your comfort and peace and we pray for that, for all those who continue to grieve. Uh, we're mindful especially today of the Ruby Cornwall family and Charles Robbins and his family at the death of his mother. And we pray that you will give them your peace and, and enter in and draw those families closer to one another and closer to you. We're thankful for your watchfulness over those who are ill, for your healing power upon those who have had surgeries and procedures, those undergoing treatments. We pray for the effectiveness of all of that. And as always, we pray for protection and safety for our missionaries, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted, for all those who uh, lay their lives on the line for us and our safety. And we pray for our leaders in this nation, in our state, and in our community. Pray for your wisdom to be upon them and for the strength they need to make the right decisions for us as a nation, for our society. And we pray for our denomination as we move closer to time for our general synod meeting. We pray that your will is done and we pray that you will give us a sense of unity in the life of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. We pray for our outgoing moderator, Steve May, and we pray for our incoming moderator, Andy Putnam. And pray your blessing upon them both as they lead different parts of the meeting. And dear Father, as always, we're thankful for your presence here in our midst today. Thankful for the way that your Holy Spirit has spoken to us and will continue to empower us in the days to come with those tasks you've given us to do and would ask your blessing upon us that we might be found faithful in your sight. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We do want to reaffirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. They're printed for you in your bulletin. Let's stand together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our hymn of dedication is number 120. You may not be too familiar uh, with this tune, but I want you to pay a special attention to the first stanza. Behold the amazing gift of love the Father hath bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. We'll stand and sing all stanzas together. the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. 